Wrestling Resurgence presents the Grappling Arts Podcast, where we explore the craft of professional wrestling. Welcome to the first episode of this brand new Wrestling Resurgence Podcast, where we celebrate the art of professional wrestling, explore wrestling practice, and dig deep into its rich and varied history. Throughout the series, we'll be bringing you interviews with leading figures from within the independent wrestling community, as well as a variety of expert guests and contributors. Topics will include theatre, sport, storytelling and performance. I am your host, Sam West, co-owner of the independent wrestling promotion Resurgence, which is a theatre-led wrestling company based in the East Midlands. You will also find me at Loughborough University, where I'm a doctoral researcher studying storytelling in, you guessed it, professional wrestling. My expert co-host is Resurgence Colour Commentator Claire Warden, who is a senior lecturer in English and Drama at Loughborough University and the co-editor of the book Performance and Professional Wrestling. So without further ado, let me introduce our special guest for this inaugural episode. He can be found tearing it up, up and down the UK for wrestling companies such as Pro Wrestling Chaos, Attack Pro Wrestling, Good Wrestling, Riptide Wrestling, Ambush Pro Wrestling and of course Wrestling Resurgence. He is a former three-time Pro Wrestling Chaos King of Chaos champion, former Dragon Pro All-Wales champion, the winner of the 2019 Gift of Good tournament, and a former ICW tag team champion. He is made in Newport, 16-year veteran, formerly known as the Ginger Jesus, currently known as the Godfather of Welsh Wrestling, Flying Mike Bird. Outside of the squared circle, Mike is a former head trainer at the prestigious Dragon Pro Wrestling School, where he taught, amongst others, the modfather Flash Morgan Webster and Dragonheart Danny Jones. He is now the owner of Catch-22 Wrestling in Gravesend, where he continues to train the next generation of professional wrestlers. For this interview, Mike sends us three matches that influenced him, as well as three matches that he feels best represent him as a performer. So in the course of this episode... We will discuss the Southern Boys versus the Midnight Express from Great American Bash 1990, Bret Hart versus the One Two Three Kid from Monday Night Raw in 1994, and Kenta Kabashi versus Kazuki Sasaki from Noah Destiny 2005. From his own body of work, we hear about a much-loved Iron Man match against Wild Boar Mike Hitchman, his subsequent tag team partnership with Wild Boar in Insane Championship Wrestling and two matches with fellow Welsh wrestler Danny Jones, including their epic encounter at Pro Wrestling Chaos from February this year. We'll finish with a quick chat about teaching, training, and what it is like to be a locker room leader. Links to all these matches will be included in the description, um, so you can check them out for yourself. We had a lot of fun recording this episode with Mike, and I hope you enjoy the first episode. Feedback is always appreciated, so do let us know. Enjoy the episode. I'm Mike Bird. Uh, I've been a professional wrestler for 16 years. Yes, 16, 16 years now. I've, I, the only reason I know that it's 16 years is because I have the date written on a VHS of my very first professional match. So for, for those of you that are listening that don't know what a VHS is, well, back, in, back in the 90s and 80s, yes um so yeah that's i've been wrestling for longer than i've not been wrestling um 
uh, got involved uh, with wrestling at a typ- typical British young age for most wrestlers. Uh, at about 15, I started training. But uh, before that, I'd obviously played, and I was still playing rugby to a very high uh, level uh, throughout my youth, uh, starting when I was eight and up till about 21. Um, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I suppose I suppose so much fell out of love with rugby so much as I was wrestling and playing rugby from about the age of, well, from 15 up until about 21. And um, it became a bit of a a grind of, I would go and I played rugby in the morning or like the sort of early afternoon. And then I'd, like me and my dad, would then drive up to whatever small pokey valley town that I was uh, wrestling in that night. Normally Merthyr. So it's not quite not quite as small as some of the times I've wrestled in, but um, so we do that. Um, and then as I started to uh, get older, I would then uh, navigate my way from whatever Pokey Valley town I'd wrestled in back to Newport if we'd had a home game and try and catch up with the rugby lads who were out on a night out. So and then after drinking copious amounts of fermented beverages, I would then wake up the next morning and go over to St. go training. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, was, um, it wasn't so much I fell out of love, love with rugby. It was just I loved wrestling a bit more. So that then I was always a better wrestler than I was a rugby player. So, so I think I've, uh, I think I've picked, picked the right choice. Um, so b- before we delve into uh, some of your influences as a wrestler, I wanted to ask you a kind of opening question. Of course. Um, when, when I've kind of watched your matches live or on tape, one thing that kind of jumps out at me is that um, you, you kind of portray the, the quintessential wrestler. It's sort of, um, uh, I, I kind of think of it, yeah, as this sort of classic wrestler character. And I wondered whether you agreed with that. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I, I can, especially the last however many years, um, I can definitely, I can definitely agree with that. Um, early in my youth, I was just a smaller wrestler because, again, I, I, I was never a big, uh, I was never a big lad. Uh, up until sort of I hit my twenties and I started filling out. But um I, I was always a sort of smaller wrestler, so I could and there weren't lots of people doing and I wasn't doing mad flips, but um I, I was very into um uh, like the mid nineties Japanese junior heavyweights, do you know what I mean? That, that had sort of been patterned after the dynamite kids and the tiger masks in the eighties. Um, so like your like is like a massive fan of like uh, great Sasuke's, uh, Eddie Guerrero and like a lot of the WCW junior cruiserweights, excuse me. Um, so there was that and that was 
throughout the early 2000s for me that was kind of enough do you know I mean but then as the scene started uh broadening and uh as it sort of started just sort of touch on the boom period of british wrestling everybody like everybody sort of started to get characters and gimmicks and that, that seemed to be the thing and like for years and years like uh i i did uh was very much influenced by uh the sort of mad max road warrior look and things like that with the leather jacket and uh, the gas mask and then the plague mask and things like that and to me like as much as i do love dirty dirty heavy metal and and, and like the mad max films and the warriors like they might they're some of my favorite films they're just not me so for years and years and years um i'd sort of been struggling to sort of find oh well what's my what's my gimmick what's my character what's my act and then i kind of realized i've been wrestling for 16 years at a very high level i'm just a very good wrestler do you know what i mean and it, it just seemed it just <sighs> you almost fall into what you actually are as as a as an actor as a gimmick so and i, and I think that was kind of it i kind of stumbled on like the, the gimmick or character if you will and it's not really a gimmick or a character because it's just me i mean i i and as we'll probably discuss in sort of uh, the next couple of minutes the 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 wrestlers that have always resonated with me they just felt real do you know what I mean like uh, they you couldn't poke a hole through them whether it be their work or their personality they're just kind of them and their wrestling suits just who they are and that's for me that's kind of what I ended up gravitating towards was just wrestling like wrestlers I liked being myself and I think through being myself it just allows me to wrestle how I want to wrestle and I think that's kind of that's kind of how I've managed to gain this reputation and this characterization of a, a wrestler a classic wrestler do you mean that's that's what I think I've uh, almost stumbled into it and earned it the hard way. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll explore it more as we go along, but it's certainly, it struck me quite a lot when you walk out to face Danny Jones in that final match in the series. Yeah. That, that was, you looked sort of supremely confident and there was a kind of, um, like you looked comfortable in your own skin and the, you know, the, the, uh, the robe and the gear and, and the championship obviously helps. <laughs> that that doesn't that that never hurts. That never hurts. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's because I am. I like. I'm not just comfortable. Um, I'm not just comfortable in myself, but I'm comfortable in my ability. Do you know what I mean? I I know I can do what I do, no matter what. Like it. It's I. <sighs> 
I'm not just portraying a character, Jimmy. I am this person. I am. I can do all of the things. I can back up all of the things that I do. Do you know what I mean? I like all of the, and I, and I think, and you you hear a lot of people say that about people that they're just playing wrestler, mm. like that isn't that they're not necessarily taking wrestling seriously or taking their career seriously or things like that, but you know, can they, can they, can these people do the things that they, I suppose, well, pretending to do, do you know what I mean? Like, can they, can you really go out there? Can you really snatch a face lock? Can you really, you know, hold like catch this hold can you really do half of these things like and i think that's where a lot of my confidence has come from is being like oh actually i can do all of these things do you know what I mean mm. like it wasn't always that way christ you know when i was a 16 year old boy i'd get my nose rubbed into the mat and <laughs> slapped slapped around and then you sort of turn up the next week so sort of go yep let's go again and and that's that you know? but I think like a lot of people they're not necessarily confident in themselves because they're not necessarily confident in their wrestling if that makes sense yeah i suppose it's about like that believability factor like i need as a wrestling fan to believe that you are who you are and if you're believing you are who you are then it gives me the confidence to believe that too right oh yeah absolutely the 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 easiest way to make people believe you can do something is have the ability to do something do you know I mean like like someone like uh, will osprey can do the most amazing things like uh but he, he can't pretend to do those things he he just has to do them do you know what i mean it's you know you can't pretend to like do a round off and a backflip over the ropes you can either do them or you can't do you know what I mean and that's that's why people Although it's a very different style to how I like to wrestle, but like people look at him and go, well, you can't poke a hole through that because he's literally doing the things that he's doing. There's no CGI. He hasn't got a wire attached to him. I checked, you know what I mean? Like, like he is doing the things he's doing and he's not, he's not pretending to do them. Those things are very real. And that's why, you know, that's why people buy into him. Great. No, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Then, um, no, that's okay. So let's um, start delving into some of these influences. Um, so what, okay, we, what we've done is we've asked you to pick out um, a few matches um, that you kind of identified as sort of pivotal or influential on the way that you wrestle. And yeah. um, we'll go through them chronologically. We've got three matches to discuss. Yeah. Um, and must say to start with that I've, before this that we've both enjoyed watching these matches quite a lot um, yeah i we, we ended up getting like super into the great american bash last night like, <laughs> like, like we watched absolutely loads of it so thanks for recommending it, that one like it, <laughs> it's really good it's, it's genuinely such a weird thing because it's taken a global pandemic and everybody being stuck in their houses for everybody to realize oh, actually the early sort of late 80s early 90s had some of the best like bell to bell wrestling happen and that's that's just a great event isn't it yeah it's, oh, it's fantastic really good fantastic right um, so um firstly can you just uh 
as a way of an introduction to this bit. Can you just talk us a little, like very quickly about how you went about this process of selecting these matches? Um, just in broad terms, and then we'll look at each one individually. Okay, so I... Obviously, as, as a wrestler, you have to have um, many facets. Do you know what I mean? Like, you you can't just be a character. You, you can't just be a, a wrestler. You can't just be a talker. You have to... You have to. You can't just wrestle one match. Do you know what I mean? Especially like you can't just go out and go. Oh well, this is my match. That may have been the case years ago, but obviously, especially now, you can't do that. So I think with um, how I went about selecting these matches were how these matches influenced not just uh, how I wrestle, but how I wrestle in different situations. So, um, obviously, with uh, the tag match between the Southern Boys and the Midnight Express, uh, the Midnight Express specifically were very influential for how I look at tag wrestling. Um, Because... Everybody, everybody will always put over like the the road warriors. They'll put over, uh, they'll put over the rock and roll express. They'll put over like, but a lot of people in the job will look at the midnight express because that's how a villain team should wrestle. But um, the match with. Uh, Brett and one, two, three kids. It's it's just a wrestling match, but it's how he went about structuring that match that I would like would look at. Do you know what I mean? And then with uh, the Kabashi and Sasaki match from uh, the Dome, how they went about structuring the match. So each like each match is structured. That's that's how I've looked at it. But whilst I was doing this, and then when I started to put um, uh, put together a list of my matches, I actually realised that uh, there's a great correlation between like a lot of the ma- like a lot of the matches. So um, we'll definitely get into that later. But yeah, like my process was how it didn't just influence me because I was like, oh, I'm the biggest Bret Hart fan and this is like the best Bret Hart match, which a lot of people, a lot of people would argue that it's the uh, WrestleMania match with either Owen or the WrestleMania match with Austin at 13. That is the best Bret Hart match. But it was how the matches were structured, how they put those matches together that I fell in love with and those sort of matches influenced me rather than rather than just the performers the matches yeah great so should we start with the the southern our first one is the southern boys uh versus the midnight express wcw great ah. Bash 1990 genuinely honestly that that is that is tag team wrestling isn't it that's that's what tag team wrestling is all about. 
and it's it's just if it, it's it's a match that I will make students sit down and watch and go, this is a tag team match. There's a few there's a few things that are a bit odd about the match, in so much as um obviously you've got the Southern boys who come out like regardless of um obviously like uh, the Confederate flag being a point of contention, like especially now. And again, I'm I'm not a person from America, so I can't tell American people how they should feel about that. And their feelings are incredibly valid. But the thing that got me is they're in a northern state. And you you get the southern boys coming out in their grey coats with the stars and bars, and the crowd doesn't quite know how to take them at first. So if you listen to the crowd at first, there's a big portion of them are behind the midnights, and it's really weird. So they they go into this match and they start super hot, but if you look at like anybody that's ever worked with him or anybody that's watched the great body of his work will tell you that Bobby Eaton is possibly the, the most underrated professional wrestler in the history of time, full stop, bar none. But you watch, you watch this, they start super hot and then they switch it around and then the villains take a, they take a powder mm. and they slow it right back down. And you'd expect, like, especially nowadays, if, if a match starts hot, that's it. It's got to go, 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 go. But they've got this uncanny ability. And obviously Jim Cornette on the floor plays a big part in this. Mm. Anyway, which it, he is so perfect to like the, the package. Do you know I mean, he's a dislikable gobshite. Do you know what I mean? Which <laughs> and I think that's carried over into real life for a, for a lot of people. Do you know what I mean? He was very pleasant to me when I met him, but again, dislikable gobshites. Do you know what I mean? But he, um, Bobby or, or Stan will take a, uh, take a powder and they'll just huddle together. And it's like, it's like a sport. It's like a team sport. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like, okay, come on, come on, come on, come on in. We're going to chat. All right. Okay. This isn't working. All right. Stan, go in, hit him with some karate. Do you know what I mean? That old battle game. And that's, the, that's such a wild moment is, is when they do the, uh, the, the tee off when they, you've got the uh, redneck Kung Fu Tracy Smothers, who is just fantastic. Just fantastic. Um, and he's, he's throwing all these redneck karate kicks. And the place is going bonkers. It's going absolutely wild. And they've got this match worked to a point where they were kind of unsure about the lads who were coming out in the Confederate flag. And then by the end of it, you've just got the most perfect reaction when they get screwed out, like screwed out the finish. It's absolutely perfect because you've got... Dennis, uh, not Dennis, sorry, excuse me, Stan Lane and Bobby Eaton, who are just masters of their craft. And if there is anybody, anybody that 
has any interest in tag wrestling, if they haven't studied the Midnight Express, then I think you're doing yourself a great disservice. Because they just, they know how things should ebb and flow and they can see that something isn't quite working. So, okay, we've got to change this up a bit. And it's, it's the perfect example of a tag match. I think the, one of the things that I really liked about the, particularly the opening sequence, the opening sort of five to 10 minutes of the match. And I think the Midnight Express do this quite a lot is that when they're trying to gain control of the match, they, they just do this fantastic job of making the Southern boys look amazing. Like they, the, and you said like with the regrouping yeah. with Cornette, they, they come yeah. back to try, they, they almost get control mm. and then they lose it again and the Southern boys are back on top. Yeah. And it's that they sort of, every time they try and think, you think they've got, they got it and they're yeah. going to slow it down and go into the, into the heat, then, they change, then the Southern boys change it up and they lose control again. And that's why the Midnight Express don't necessarily get placed on top of everybody's list when they think about great tag teams. But that's why the Midnight Express should be on top of the list because they understand that their job isn't necessarily to get themselves over. Their job is to make the Southern boys look like credible challengers. Their job is to make sure that they look like the team. Do you know what I mean? They, so they, the uh, Stan Lane and Bob Eaton version of uh, the Midnight Express are a bit more flashy than the Dennis Condry and uh, Bob Eaton version. So they do, they have some quite cool tag, like tag sequences. But even then, no matter what sort of uh, cool little sequence that they'll do or, or nice uh, little team move they do, they're always going to make sure that Armstrong and some others pay it back tenfold. You know I mean? So if they'd have just sort of blitzed through the Southern boys, then they'd have ended up becoming baby faces. But they had to work double hard to make sure that these guys got over. And... And every time they sort of look like they're about to really sort of start to like slide into the heat and okay, we can pull it out of pace. No, they'll switch it back around and let Armstrong or let Smothers get something. And it just builds and builds and builds so beautifully that even me at 32 years of age will still sit there and sort of ooh and ah along with the crowd. It's just a perfect tag match. I'm really interested in the idea of like tag team wrestling being like a team sport. Um, Because for me, as somebody like coming from a theatrical background, I see them as, as I I often kind of imagine wrestling and its relationship with sort of contact improvisation Mm -hmm. or dance or acting or something, but actually to think about it as a sport, as a team sport, especially I suppose with your background in rugby as well, is kind of really interesting to think about like here I am in my team and I'm, I'm against this team, but I'm actually also not against this team. I'm also like trying to make them look good to kind of just oh, yeah. what you just said. So like, there's a lot of kind of interesting team dynamics going on in that match, I think, which is really fascinating. But, that, but that's it. I think um, a, lot of, a, a lot of people look at, uh, you tend to have this really peculiar sort of two camp mentality when it comes to wrestling. There's people that are 
completely this is a sport this is sport and then you have the people that are well this is drama this is performance art this is this and i've always tried to walk a line between the two because if you think if you think about it it's a it's a soap opera about a real sport you know what I mean? It's like if something as daft as say footballers' wives. You know what I mean? Football is still football in footballers' wives. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's it's not like it's not like physics or like common sense or the rules change because it's footballers' wives. You know, football is still football. You know what I mean? Like um, it. It all boils down to that. So the sport is still real, but how uh, how we look at it is obviously from or through a different lens, if you will. Mm. So yeah, like I, I always look at it like that because, and e- even for me, planning it, like looking how I structure certain matches and planning things, that something as silly as rugby or like uh, something as uh, Obviously, uh, I wouldn't say silly because that's completely like my looking at it. I will look at it like a rugby match sometimes because sports will offer you some of the most dramatic moments you will ever, ever see. Like, um, obviously, I'm going to sort of be rugby centric because that's what I had since I was a child. You know what I mean? That was like that was the first sport. Um, so it's just something like the the Brighton miracle. Do you mean it? The not the World Cup just gone. The World Cup before you had Japan, who are complete outliers. They they are a second. They have always been a second tier nation. Are playing former world champions, and it's South Africa, and they aren't just sort of hanging on they're taking it to south africa so everybody's going oh oh hang on oh hang on hang on can, can, yeah they can keep up this is brilliant and they keep up and they keep up and then eventually they actually sort of start pulling it closer and closer and then in this dying seconds they get a try and it's absolutely wild and that's the most dramatic thing like these this small shouldn't win nation has just beaten former world champions I mean, it's absolutely mental to think it but you can have exactly the same dramatic reaction from wrestling just because it's not presented as a soap opera you present it as a a sporting contest, it can still be just as dramatic. And I think a lot of people forget that or don't understand that, that drama doesn't just come from, well, this person killed my father and, you know I mean, yeah. and t- turn it into a Bruce Lee film. <laughs> Do, I, it, it, wanting to win, wanting to win can be the most, and wanting somebody to win can be the most dramatic thing. And I think people lose sight of that occasionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think all all of the matches that you selected are actually, and you, we already spoke a little bit about how you admire the structuring of those matches. 
I think in in particular, say if we turn now to the Bret Hart one, two, three kid match, that's got, that's got a sport, a real sporting story to it, that match, which is essentially like, for me, what I took away with that match was that Bret is almost always in control of the match. And Kid has to do everything. He has to take the biggest risks just to try and get control of the match and control of Brett. And never quite gets there. That was, I don't know whether that's... Well, honestly, it's one of my favourite matches to watch. So, um, Brett Hart was the man. Like, a lot of people will look back and say, oh yeah, Brett was a great wrestler. Like, but... A lot of people don't realize because obviously I was like, well, when I was a kid, Brett was the man. They don't actually realize how over Brett was, especially in those like sort of 94, 95 periods. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, it's a, it's just, it's a masterpiece. And a lot of people, a lot of people don't because it's just, it's just on a raw. It's just a match on a random episode of Raw with the one, two, three kids who, much like Japan against South Africa, stand zero chance, zero chance of beating this two-time world champion at this point. He's he's only just sort of been elevated from being a job guy, but he's got this match. And if you look at how it's structured, it's structured perfectly because the very first thing they lock up and Brett takes an arm drag and the camera catches it beautifully. He's just sat up and he just raises an eyebrow as if to say, oh, hang on. All right, he's, he's got a bit of something extra there. Okay. And then you see how he has to take it to him. He doesn't just sort of wait around and sort of go, okay, Brett goes at him. But this this is the thing about Brett is like people people go oh well he doesn't do anything cool and he's like no that's that's not why he's the best wrestler in the world ever do you know what I mean it's things like him taking an arm drag and just being sat up and just raising his eyebrow that's what made him the best wrestler in the world ever do you know what I mean because through just lifting one eyebrow he's told you. Oh, hang on. This guy might actually have something. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, I think that's the great thing about that match is that, like, you totally think, well, Brett's going to, of course, he's going to win this. Like, of course he is. But then there are little tiny moments of doubt that he kind of sprinkles into the whole match, which are just Mm. amazing. Like, little little moments lifting an eyebrow or like just little tiny teases all the way through. And you just, you always, even though you, you just like, of course Brett's going to win this, but all the time in your heart, you're like, Oh, hold on a minute. May, maybe. And I think even the start and like with Owen there and like that kind of feuding at the start adds something to that teasing. Right. Well, well that's, that's the thing. I, th- I think the beauty of it is, um, cause obviously for those who like, weren't necessarily paying attention to WWF television in 1994, um, the, the big feud was uh, Owen and Brett. And that was the big feud was Owen and Brett. And uh, they got all sorts of other members of the family involved. So you had uh, Neidhart, like ended up siding with Owen and Bulldog siding with Brett. And, um, but it's great because it's, 
they don't they don't get involved in the match, but Owen and Neidhart they come out and they cause a bit of a scene, but they don't get involved. Like they get all the referees, they usher them off. And I thought it was well done because it lets you know, all right, this this is still going on. We've not forgotten about this thing. Owen is still Owen is still a gobshite. He's a dickhead. We don't like him. But you're gonna get a good you know what I mean? You're like right. they've they've been shoot so there's there's this still this sort of element of hang on, will Will Owen come out? Will Owen come and screw? Like, will he? Will he cause this big upset? Do you know what I mean? Will Will? Do you know what I mean? Will like Nightheart get involved? So there's that. So there's that element playing into it. And you think, okay, and then bang, he snaps a real tight arm drag off, and Brett's like, oh, hang on. He's like, oh, hang on. So, like, now you've got the threat of the one, two, three kids, but you've also you've also got the you've also got the threat of Owen helping the world. You know what I mean? It's so it's such a you sit there and you go, oh, okay. If this was based on wrestling purely alone, I think, oh, no, hang on, Brett doesn't have it. Oh, and there's Owen as well. So there's so many elements moving through the match. And Brett's firmly in control. And um, it's it's one of these, uh, like I try and teach the lads that, you don't just have to sort of go and it's it's your turn now when you do all your stuff and it's your turn now when you do it. And it's like, no, this is a perfect example of almost wrestling in bursts. Mm. So Brett will be in, firmly in control and you'll try and keep his pace. And uh, one, two, three kid will... Like, look for a way out, won't find it. Look for a way out, won't find it. You know what I mean? Oh, you'll move out the way back. Okay, there's my opening. And he'll go after it. And he'll, he'll boom, 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 boom. And then Brett will shut him back down. Mm. And he can, do, like, he will do it the same again. Brett will still look for something. And then boom, 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 boom. And it, it's just, it's just got so many peaks and valleys to the match. It's so beautifully done. And then, when you think Brett's got it won, one, two, three kids got his foot on the rope. <laughs> and the referee calls it, and Brett goes, no, I ain't having it. I'm not having it. So in your mind, you're thinking, like, the people that are conditioned to knowing what should happen, they go, oh, well, hang on. He's, he's got his foot on his rope. So if you're conditioned to watching wrestling, people who think they know wrestling they they go oh well he's he's they're restarting the match so obviously you know, the one two three kids probably gonna win do you know what I mean? mm-hmm. so like people but it's it's such a great way of showing again like it's just such a subtle thing but like brett brett ain't gonna accept that not after like not after the effort that this lad's put in i mean not after like not after like everything that the one, two, three kid has like sent after him. Do you know what I mean? He's not gonna, he's not gonna let him sort of. He's not gonna take a win like that. And that that just shows you what sort of a champion Brett is and how much winning clean means to him. And you can't help but get behind him 
But then when when two three kids snatches a roll up straight away, you're like, is this it? No, and it's it's so well done in in that it plays with the tropes and con- like conventions that we've all bought into of wrestling. That, oh well, the match is restarting, so obviously the finish is going to be different, and it's. It's just so masterfully done. It's paced so well. It's it's uh, it's just a masterpiece. It, it really, truly is. And you come away come away from that going, Bret Hart is the man. But you also come away from that going, man, one, two, three kid could be world champion. You know what I mean? Not not only has Bret just solidified himself as the man. He has made the one, two, three kids. Do you know what I mean that? Like, and that was the beautiful thing about Brett was, as much as, as much as he would be able to get himself over and uh, make himself look amazing, he would always make sure that the person he's wrestling looked fantastic. Do you know what I mean like? And this is, and this is. Um, a conversation that I often have is that Brett throughout the 90s was probably a better bell-to-bell performer than Shawn Michaels. Now, I'm not counting Shawn Michaels' return when he basically went, oh, well, I'm just going to be the best ever. But throughout the 90s, Bret Hart made people like Hakushi look like credible world champion world championship threats he made a kiss my foot match with jerry the king lawler mean something i mean he he you bought isaac yankum as a direct threat to like diesel diesel had his best matches with brett hands down do you know what I mean? like he made everybody else looked great while still looking great himself. And I think that was the art, especially in this match. He he made potentially another main eventer whilst not taking anything away from himself. It goes back to what you were saying about like being a confident in, like what you were talking about at the start, like being confident in your own abilities, going into the ring and being a confident wrestler. And like, you know, that's, that's Brett, isn't it? Like going in, yeah. he's confident, he's confident in his ability, he's confident in what he is. And that confidence means that he can put someone else over and make them look a million dollars. Like, because he, because he enters the ring with that confidence that, you know, that's what makes him such mm-hmm. a spectacularly good wrestler amongst other things. Well, that's that again, like going back to like Brett Hart, like, you can't poke the hole through Bret Hart. Do you know I mean there's, there's, you listen to interviews with Bret Hart and you then go back and you watch like promos with Bret Hart and there's not, I mean, you know, it's, it, they're very much kind of like the same thing. Do you know what I mean? He, he's very proud of his work. He's very proud of like the things he's done and he's very confident in his abilities like well whilst he was wrestling and you can see this like he is that that's just Brett like and I think that's why people gravitated towards him because he was real Brett Hart was real and that's why people that's why 
I think a lot of people gravitated towards him was because he was just Bret Hart. And like after, especially the 80s and the rest of the stuff in the early 90s where everybody was a a dustbin man or a, a plumber or things like that, he, he, he was he was real. You go, ah, yeah, like the other guys, you know what I mean? Like the, the, the ice hockey player, do you know what I mean? Like he's, you know, he's a bit wacky, but like, but Bret Hart, is the man you can't poke a hole through Bret Hart's work? He's the man, and I think I think that's why a lot of people gravitated towards him. And I and I think like a lot of people um, don't play it, but I think I think the rest of the world gravitated towards Bret as well, just simply because he was an American. Like it's as stupid as it sounds. Like Hulk Hogan was the most overact throughout the 80s, do you know what I mean, and going into the 90s. But he's just this giant American superhero. He's American, he's American Thor, do you know what I mean? So I think someone like Brett, not being, not being that, do you know what I mean? The rest of the world could be like, Oh, okay. Well, he's Canadian. Do you know what I mean? That's not American. That's not American. Do you know what I mean? And I think a lot of people gravitated towards that because he was a lot more real. And I think that, and I think that's why he has lasting, like, had lasting appeal mm. outside of the US. Do you know what I mean? Like in obviously over here in Germany, South Africa, and Asia, and a lot of these places, because. He was an American, and he was just real. He felt like he felt like the rest of the world's champion, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I could talk about Bret Hart for the whole whole duration of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, should we move on to your final pick, which uh, we're fast absolutely fast forwarding just over ten years? I think it's eleven years between this and the Bret Hart one two three kid match, and we're also traveling to Japan. So we have yes. Kenta Kobashi versus Hizuki Sasaki. Uh, Kensuke Sasaki, yes. Um, so this is as it like like I said when I when I was younger, I um, I was very much into the New Japan uh, Junior Heavyweights, and uh, that would you of. I, I, I'm not going to go into what tape trading was, but <laughs> trade tapes is, I still have a very shonky copy of the Super J Cup 94 on, oh, spread over two, two VHSs, which was my pride, which was my pride and joy for years. But, um, so that was where like, uh, I grew to like a lot of the, uh, junior heavyweights, but, uh, as I started getting older, uh, as I started getting older, I really started to discover more of the heavyweights. But not only that, I switched to uh, f- from watching a lot of New Japan to watching uh, All Japan, and then obviously the successor, um, uh, Pro Wrestling Noah, and that was. Um, when I started training, that pro wrestling Noah is a relatively new, new outfit. So I think it started in started training in '03. Noah had only been around for two years. So, like even before that, like 
so you'd get you'd get uh, you'd get um, VHSs, which were slightly better quality because it's not from like the eighties on from that ninety four. It's relatively new, or you'd get uh, DVDs that were like blank region. So discovering uh, guys like Kabashi was a very was a very different thing for me because I'd obviously sort of seen New Japan, which was very big on uh, strong style, which was you sort of try and try and make wrestling look as legitimate as possible, theoretically. Um, but all Japan and then subsequently Noah were about having the best wrestling matches. And to my mind, Kenta Kabashi was the man having the best wrestling matches. He was, and you watch back through the 1990s, he, for everybody that says, oh, Kabashi, he does wild stuff. That's not the reason I fell in love with Kabashi. It's not the, you know, sort of, not the chops or the head drops or any of that. It's his selling. It's how he sells. It's how he registers things. He's he's like Brett in that way. In so much as a lot of people, they don't see that detail because they see you know these wild suplexes off the apron to the floor or like the mad sort of head drops into the turnbuckle, things like that. People don't see just the subtle. They they gloss over the subtlety and this fire for when he sort of starts to make a comeback and he just holds his fists up and the Budokan explodes because they know he's starting to make a comeback now. And like, he's taken all he can take and he's going to make a comeback now. And it's a lot of those things that people don't see. But this match specifically, again, with how it's structured, is one of my favourites because you have Kensuke Sasaki, who is um, an outsider to uh, pro wrestling or at that time, he'd been New Japan loyalist through all of the 90s um, and then defected to wrestle for all Japan after the pro wrestling Noah exodus. So this was kind of like a dream match for a lot of people. So you've just got these two massive names, Kenta Kabashi and Kensuke Sasaki. It's the first time they're ever meeting. And it is a dream match because you know that they're not going to take a back step from each other. You know they've only got one speed and that's go. They're only going one direction. They're going forward. And I think that's what's intrigued a lot of people. And, um, looking at how this match is structured it's structured so well but it's an entirely different thing to uh, say Breton 123 kid where it's just a, a little subtle thing that they they do where you get Brett raising his eyebrow and people go oh this one, this is a dream match. This is a match that people would never have dreamt they were getting. 
but here it is. So it's got to live up to expectations. So you get Kabashi snatches a headlock real early on. And then Sasaki just drops him with this horrifying side suplex. And everybody goes, <gasps> and then they come back and they start throwing lariats at each other and they just spill to the floor. And for me, it was, it was one of those matches that you watch and you go, there's a way of, there's a way of starting big without losing the crowd later on. And this most certainly is it. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, I was going just... to ask about the crowd because it's really like the the crowd here. I mean, the crowd in in, in all these matches are interesting, uh, kind of hot and interesting ways. But they're really interesting in this match. I really am kind of intrigued by Japanese crowds. It really makes something in this match, right? Like it's re- they're really important to the way it goes. Well, this is it. Like one of my favourite noises you hear from Japanese crowds is "oh," yeah. because because they're not expecting something. Do you know what I mean you see a lot of American crowds and? British and European crowds, and they'll boo and yay and things like that. But it's incredibly rare that you'll get that gasp of, where they're just not expecting something. And as soon as he snatches that headlock and uh, Sasaki um, pops his hips, they go, oh, because they're not expecting it. They're not expecting it, like kicking the high gear quite so soon. But then you've got the most beautiful image of they both bump they both know that they've taken a bit of a bit of a pasting in the first few minutes of a match and they both roll the floor but they roll on opposite sides and as much as you you look at things like uh uh the wwe and western style wrestling for like cinematic moments and things like that that is by far one of the most cinematic moments where they both sort of start getting up together and they're holding their necks. And you see Sasaki and Kabashi just looking at each other from either side of the ring. And they're almost, it's just like two balls. You know what I mean? They just, no, this is my field. No, no, this is, no, I'm, I'm coming. This is my field. And they're just shouting and pointing across the ring at each other. And I don't know what they're saying. You don't, like, I don't speak Japanese, but I don't know what they're saying. But I know exactly what they're saying. Do you know what I mean? Mm, their yeah. body language, their faces, their, just everything they're doing with it. Like, it's real. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, they're almost daring each other to get in the ring. Go on, get in the ring. Come on. And it's, you know exactly what's going on. You don't need a translator. You know exactly what's going on. Alfred Hitchcock, he said, the best films that you can ever watch will be the ones you can play in any country without subtitles and people will still understand what's going on and that's the beauty of this match because you don't you don't necessarily need to know the backstory you don't need to know you know that Kenta Gapashi had a five-star match with uh, Tsuyoshi Kikuchi against the Can-Am Express in the early you know you don't need to know all of that all you need to all you need to understand is that these two massive blokes want to win, mm. and they if it's their egos or or their um, their honor or their respect, it, like 
that's kind of up to your interpretation of it. But you know that these men aren't going to take a back step and they don't. And that's all they want. They just want to be able, they just want to win. They won't back down. They won't, they won't show weakness as much as, as much as they're selling and things like that. They won't show weakness. Do you mean they, as much as we'll probably talk about in a minute, they get into a bit of a dick swinging contest (laughs) by halfway through the match. But that's, that's the beauty of that match is that it's kicked into overdrive really early on and you completely understand it. You don't need, you don't need a commentary team to tell you, do you know what I mean? You don't need, you know, you like as fantastic as he is, you don't need Jim Ross explaining to you like this bit of the backstory or this bit of the backstory. Do you know what I mean? The, the match speaks for itself and that's the beauty of it. Yeah, it was interesting that you mentioned the sort of cinematography, sort of cinematic element. Because I, when I was watching it, I, I started to think a lot about how, obviously, American wrestling is often said as being theatrical in comparison to Japanese mm. wrestling, which is much more about the sport. But this, yeah. this had a, this was this had theatre in a whole different way. Like it was, and Claire might be able to pick up on this a bit better. But it, it felt very, very theatrical in a in the in the way that they told the story like it just had that like proper spectacle kind of thing and um i was thinking about maybe like the american american wrestling actually is a bit more like an action movie whereas this was this yeah a lot more firmly rooted in theater to me i don't know what what do you yeah no i mean i when i was watching this like one of the things that i was struck by was it's um how similar it was to some kind of like endurance, like durational performance. Like there was such an endurance quality to this match. Like these were two guys, like, as you say, like two kind of balls going at each other. And it it really felt like they had to, yeah, kind of endure something. And I was kind of reminded of a lot of kind of contemporary durational performance practice where in watching it or even or even in doing it there is sort of a sense of a feeling like you're enduring something and that the body is the kind of the, the the central sign of the storytelling process so i don't need to understand japanese to make sense of this what's going on because i can read the story because i can read the bodies as because you know that that's in essence a universal language that kind of over, overcomes yeah. Well, I I think that's that's the beauty of this match is is if especially if you're going to compare it to uh, like a lot of a lot of uh, big American matches to action films, this would be something like a cowboy film. Yeah. You you have you have the baddest gunslinger in the West has just arrived in this sheriff's town. And this sheriff isn't going to let him. He's not going to let him have his way. And, and I think that's that's the beauty of it. It's just so simple to understand. And it it, it, endure, it endures as one of my favourite matches, not just through feats of physicality, but through... Just through story, storytelling alone. It's... It's simple but perfect. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just some of the feats of physicality, yeah, do still 
horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Super brutal, yeah, horrendous. Um, right, we've we've spent quite a lot of time on these, so. <laughs> well, you can tell it likes wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's let's move things on then to your own wrestling. Let's talk about that. Um, so yeah, what we did was then we asked you to do a similar process to what we've just been through, but for your own matches. Yeah. And what you recommended for us was uh, we had yourself and Wild Boar Mike Hitchman. Yes. Polo Promotions from ICW. Yes. And I think that's 2017. Yes. Then we've got uh, a match with Matt Riddle from, <laughs> I assume, 2018. The, I think it may be. It may be 2008. No, it's 2017, sorry. Yeah, it's 2017. from Chaos. Yes. And then we've got Danny Jones, uh, firstly in Progress, and that's December 2017. And then uh, I watched, as a bit of a bonus, the match with Danny Jones from Progress and Chaos from this February. Yes. Um, so should we start with the tag team match? Um, with this one, just give us a little intro to it, and oh. then I'm interested in particularly like how how you and Mike started tagging together, and what what the process of becoming a tag team is, and all that sort of thing. <laughs> well, I um with uh, with with Mr. Hitchman, I genuinely is one of. Is the smartest wrestlers. I mean, this again. I I love watching him wrestle because of subtleties that he does. And like I I can say that because I trained him. But like he's just one of the best in the world. Like give him give him an inch, he'll take a mile. He's just that good. I, he uh, <laughs> he's got no he's got no front. This is how good of a worker he is. He's got no front teeth. And he will bite people and get a reaction. That's how, that's how good of a wrestler he is. He is, honestly, he's one of a kind. He is phenomenal. Um, so, uh, match, match you didn't mention. Um, uh, we'd, we'd wrestled each other quite frequently. And I love wrestling him because... As physical as it is, it, like you can hit your best mates <laughs> harder than you would anybody else. But um, as physical as we always get with each other, it always feels like a night off. I mean, it's you work hard and you can knock seven shades out of each other, but you know you are going to have a fantastic wrestling match. Um, so we wrestled each wrestled each other in an Ironman match for Pro Wrestling Chaos. I was a champion at the time, and we were wrestling this Ironman match. And the funny bonus story: it's my favourite match, full stop, ever, because I completely messed up the match. Uh, <laughs> so obviously, like trying to trying to structure this match. We put um, we put together uh, certain things to try and get through at certain uh, sort of time cues. So obviously we have the ring announcer 
tell this what time we got. So I turned to the ref. I don't know how deep we are at the match. I turned to the ref and uh, and I'm like, how how long? And this certain ref who will remain remain nameless, Paz. Um, <laughs> He he said ten minutes. So I don't always have the best concept of time, and I thought you got to be shitting me. You can't have ten minutes left. Oh God, we haven't even had the refs call. So I go, so I pull in hitch. I'm like, right, we're gonna have to go to these. We're gonna have to go to this spot. We're gonna get to this thing. We're gonna have to drop these things. And I remember we did this big. Beautiful superplex. Boom. And just as we're getting up there, the timekeeper calls 15 minutes gone, 15 minutes remaining. <laughs> and as, as I'm getting up there, I realized that Paz is meant we've only done 10 minutes, and I've taken that as we've got 10 minutes left. So I'm lying on the mat after taking this big superplex and I'm going, right, we're going to have to put some stuff back in uh, <laughs> and then we're just going to kind of have to wing it, mate. Sorry. <laughs> so it, it's genuinely one of my, it's probably going to be my favorite match till the day I die because I, like, I don't care where I go, what I do because we we wrestled this match and it all went wrong but we were calling everything on the fly and we wrestled the last 15 minutes pretty much on the fly like we knew obviously we knew the finishes we needed but we wrestled this 15 minutes on the fly and and he's calling stuff up at me and I'm calling stuff to him and when we get to the finish, we get to him hitting me with a pile driver at five seconds left, covers me at four seconds left. And, and it is the tightest three count you've ever, like you've ever seen. And it is the loudest reaction. <laughs> I've been in front of hundreds more people than that. That is the loudest reaction I've ever heard. It was just from the heart that this person had won. And it's, I get backstage and Dave, uh, Dave Mercy, who uh, was sat in gorilla position, one of the three lads were in chaos, Dave, Nick and Rob. He was sat there white in the face. Where's that? Like, give me five minutes. Give me five minutes, <laughs> but but um, so like we've been me and uh, Hitchman have been classic uh, enemies, but uh, dear friend of mine, Mikey Whiplash, was on the card that night, and he watched the match, and he thought it was brilliant. So he was uh, figured in with ICW at that time. So 
ICW was still touring regularly around the country. So they were doing a date in Cardiff. So we ended up, uh, we ended up both getting booked because Whippy had put us forward because, you know, if anybody knows good wrestlers, Whippy knows good wrestlers. Do you know what I mean? So if his, his word is enough, then we're going to get the date. So no idea what we were going to do. So we both pretty much exclusively singles wrestlers. We booked in a tag match with uh, Shah and Kid Fight. And they go, all right, well, here's what we'd like to do. We'd like to do this. And uh, but much like the Bret Hart 1, 2, 3 kid match, we actually win the titles. But uh, Fighter's foot's on the rope. Uh, they restart the match, and then obviously they get the they get the um, they get the belts back. So we walk backstage. Me and like obviously I coached. A coach stage man, so I knew how he worked. But we walked backstage, and uh, <laughs> we walked straight into Dallas. Mark Dallas, a promoter at uh, ICW, and he goes, "Ah, oh, it was good, that. Uh, you guys tag off." And the first words out of my mouth, like, "Yeah, we've been tagging regularly for years. Of course <laughs> we have. <laughs> Whatever's going to get me the job." <laughs> But no, so uh, they brought us they brought us up to Glasgow and they started bringing us up regularly. And uh, me and Hitchman were doing quite well. Um, we'd been uh, given Yeston Reese, the most West Country sounding Welshman you'll ever meet, um, as the third man as well. So we were doing very well. We were doing some very good business there. Um, but the polos, the polos were, were the boys. I mean, they, they, if they didn't have the belts, they were going to be the next guys to get the belts. I mean, that's, that's always the case. Nobody could beat the Polos in Glasgow. They were offensively over mm. and they were just a great, great tag team. Like, again, going back to guys like the Midnight Express, they just knew the timing, they knew the subtleties. They, they were just, Beyond good, you I mean I think it's it's uh, crying shame that people don't recognise how good they are. But that aside, we've been paired up with them. Now this match specifically, um, we we felt that nobody thought we were going to win, and we had this beautiful build up where we uh, we concussed Mark. Mark Coffey. Actually, I think this might be the first time I'm ever telling the story because uh, I don't, I, do you know what? The cat's out of the bag now, Mark. Sorry, mate. Mark Mark has this party trick that he can do. If he drinks a bit of water, he can vomit on command. <laughs> so we had a match and we needed... We needed a non-finish. So, okay, cool. And Mark, I'm like, well, what if we, eh, like, what if you take out, like, Mark, and then we wrestle it, and, and Mark chimed in with, oh, 
Well, I can vomit on command. <laughs> and all of us are like, go on. So we did this, we take him out with a chair, but then this is on the stage, so he's away. And we almost wrestle the match leading up to the big match. Like, uh, like we call it on the fly. We don't, but so Mark comes back in and Jackie's like, you think I'm all right? You okay? He's like, yeah, good. So he starts running the spot and then he drops and he just pukes everywhere. <laughs> and we, and it's honestly, it's, it's one of, it's such a subtle thing, but man, my coffee genius. <laughs> so we get to this big match. Nobody, nobody has put it to the polos like we have. And then we get to this match. Now, structurally, looking at it, we try and again sort of hit those peaks and troughs. Look, we're never going to live up to the Midnight Express, but. Um, we try, we try and sort of keep, we try and keep Mark in our corner because obviously Mark's the one we've injured going into this. So structuring it, why aren't we going to go after Mark? Mark's going to be the target. Mark's the weak one at the moment. Do you know what I mean? We've put it to him specifically. He's been concussed. He's been raffled. And then we we do some like sort of subtle clever little things like you know tagging with a foot for the blind tag and things like that um there's there's a a, a spot we do with uh mark where he gives me the big uh back suplex bump and i take a spell out and hitch will come in to grab the feet to stop mark get making the tag and but as soon as he gets rid of Hitch, he'll go for the tag. And I'm I like that where I've rolled out the floor, I can just pull Jackie off the apron, bump and went back. So everything has been building up to this big comeback. Everything has been building up to it. But as soon as they get the tag, that's the place comes up. It, you know what I mean? It's we've we've built it to the point where now it's yeah, now it's really sort of kicking into overdrive. And that's when we introduce the chairs. And that's where, that's where it really sort of kicks off. And it just added another level and another dynamic to it. And it was, I say that, like I say this about the Polos, because um, again, they're not just one of my favorite teams to wrestle. They, they're just fantastic to watch. But they did more for us that night than like we'd done for ourselves in a year. I mean, they, like we beat them and like we beat them strong and they sold for us the entire way out. But they didn't, they didn't look like they were getting pushed over, do you know what I mean? But they sold the whole way. They made us look like a threat and then when we beat them, it wasn't just like, oh, this is an upset. It's like, this is an upset, but for as hard as the polos worked, those two Welsh boys worked harder. And I, that was that was the beauty of that match. And 
honestly, like I can't thank I, I can't thank Jackie and Mark enough for that because they're just wonderful, wonderful boys and <laughs> genuinely fantastic wrestlers. And yeah, that match will always stick out as one of my favourites. It's really the end is really interesting. It was like I found the end quite shocking because you win clean, and yeah. I am I'm I'm kind of all the way through thinking. You know, they look really strong, but they're going to have to do something kind of, up, you know, underhanded to get over on the pollers. And then you got to go and win clean. It's like, wow, like, it, I, it's, it's quite a, you know, that moment you were talking about in the Japanese crowd where you hear that, whoa, like that yeah. moment. I actually felt like that at the end of that match because I was like, wow, I was not expecting a clean win there. That is it. That was, that was like, it was, it was, a, it was surprise, but existed as a surprise within a story that I was that I felt was real, if you know what I mean. So it's yeah. both surprising, it's both surprising and part of that realistic storyline at the same time. So yeah, it worked great for me. That ending. Well, well, that well, that was the thing. I think because they put like they put us over clean uh, with that. We'd always had a mind that like we would run with the polos for another year. Do you mean like we'd do some stuff in between and then come back to the polos? So uh, that finish. Uh, the big gut buster with a splash, which I don't care. Hitch says he invented it. I invented it. That was that was mine. <laughs> I I'm the one that came up with it. It's it's. I want to blow my own trumpet. It's cool as that's like one of the coolest looking team finishes ever. But um, <laughs> he, uh, it nobody like we were very protective of that. Nobody kicked out of it. Not until the big match at the rematch at the Hydro. Mm. and uh that's when mark kicked out of it that was that was it like we'd saved it the entire time everybody as soon as they saw it everybody knew that was the finish like no matter what they knew as soon as we hit that we'd won mm. and i think that was it was long-term storytelling but mm. and not not just in icw like we didn't let anybody kick out of it anywhere mm. and yeah it's I think it's a long-term story. If you like tag wrestling, that's, that's got to be up there. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I really enjoyed it as well. And um, I thought one of the things that I think I particularly liked about it, and I like, it's, it's fairly rare that you see it actually in modern indie tag wrestling, is that it had, it blended that old school psychology of say a Midnight Express match with mm. with the the more modern um uh what, how would you call it the, the the modern kind of like way of having kind of ignoring tagging a little bit towards the end like the kind of fast paced double teaming interchanges like it had the psychology going through it and then yeah. the ending was a lot more i guess contemporary tag team wrestling yeah i th- especially there i think <laughs> It's sort of got to a point where you think that, oh, well, now this has gone from just two teams who are trying to prove they're better than each other, who dislike each other, to four, you know, like two teams that hate each other. Mm. And the wrestling almost comes secondary. It's sort of, there becomes a point where 
this is a match. No, this is a fight. No, this is an attempted murder. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it's, there's, there's a, it, it, it might seem subtle, but I think there's a gradient there where, you know what I mean, we're still, yeah, we're, we go from, like cheating and doing little things like whilst like whilst one of us pulls the ref do you know what i mean like the uh behind the to the point where we're like no i don't care anymore i'm just gonna try and take his eye out you know what i mean it, it's that that's like you know i don't even care about the ref i just want his throat it, it goes from well we're gonna try and win this but so we can act dirty to no i just want to hurt this person and like winning come secondary to no i just I just want him dead, and if he's dead, if he's dead, he can't kick out of a pin. So then we gotta win. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it's of your priorities take over as to what emotions you're feeling at that point. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Right, should we turn to some to, to the singles matches um, and just a little bit, keeping an eye on the time a little bit, but. <laughs> We'll jump into the series of matches with Danny Jones. Uh, yes. Starting with the progress one, obviously. Okay, yeah. so so this was uh, Dan's first exposure at progress. Now, obviously, I'd like a coach, Dan, but Dan had just come back from Japan. Now, if you look at this match and then you look at the, the Bret Hart 1, 2, 3 kid matches, there are parallels there because very early on I'm on Dan and tying him up in knots and then it comes a point where Dan just gets me up the ropes and I go okay I know what's coming like because in my mind I know he's got his he's backed me up I know that he's gotta take a shot now so I'm like come on take a shot but make it a good one and that's when he leathers me with that chop but going into this match that like it was very much uh it was very much me attempting to show everybody that Dan Jones is just a great wrestler do you know what I mean mm. but not not only that I'm attempting to Put myself over a bit, you know, because I mean? like it, the the majority of it has kind of got a bit. Like I don't mind taking control of the slower paced portions of the match because I can shine in those those moments. But it, it was very much about highlighting Dan as oh, not just some like Welsh Welsh newcomer. You know, this kid's earned a tour in Japan. Do you mean? Like he got he got selected to go out and tour with all Japan and live in the dojo there, so it was almost like, look, let's just show people what you're all about. I mean, like, I'm I know all of your tricks. Do you mean like because I've coached you? So obviously there are going to be points where I can get the upper hand, um, but he. Dan outperformed himself that night. But I think he was still trying to find himself as a performer. Like in that match specifically. Mm. But 
Um, and I've said it frequently that if you watch that match and then watch the match I had with him at Pro Wrestling Chaos where he beat me, it they they're a, they rhyme almost. Do you know what I mean? They they don't mirror each other like that. They definitely rhyme in in so much as that we open up and we're wrestling and Dan's getting the better of me a bit more than I would you know normally like to let happen. So it's almost like oh. It's it's such a super deep cut, <laughs> Jeremy, to look at um, look at that first match and then look at that second match and almost see the rhyming effect. But he he's gone from being Anakin Skywalker to being Darth Vader. <laughs> Jeremy, if if uh, if, you've, if you've got any Star Wars fans in the audience, but he. Um, He's almost outgrown me. There's not like in that second match, especially. There's a lot of subtleties that um, come me off. Uh, yeah, I think there's. Um, so the com- the commentary teams in both matches, in in the progress one and in the chaos one, make quite a lot of the story of the two of you as the sort of trainer, the the teacher and the student kind yes. of. Yes. Is that was that something that you were conscious of when you when you both sat down to plan the matches? Yes, I think um, the the first the first match we it was I'm going to take lead. I'm like I'm almost in that Bret Hart position that I'm going to come out of this smelling of roses no matter what, Jimmy. But I really want to elevate you because if I just breeze through you in 10 minutes, then eh, I ain't beating anybody, but you just like, you've always been this kind of unsung hero. Like people haven't necessarily paid as much attention to you as you deserve. So let's try and change that. You've come back from Japan. Let's show everybody what you're all about and like things that you've learned. Um, and like in the first match of progress, there like there's certain bits and pieces like he he'd do the uh exp- like he'd do the knee in the corner the big explode and then the running knee like uh akiyama because he'd because uh, he trained with um akiyama obviously <laughs> um but uh yeah and there were some points when and like again because dan was he was confident in his wrestling not in his not unnecessarily in himself. So there are times when he just does stuff. Like I remember just sort of feeding up from something and going, oh, there's a knee coming towards me. <laughs> and just Danny Jones flying through me with a knee going, I wasn't expecting that there, but fair play to you, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, um, and, and I think that that was it. And obviously building the match and building the match and building the match to the point where it has to have a ridiculous finish. Like, it, it's a little different. Like, in, as, as a wrestler in that match, I'm not going to let my student beat me. Mm. I'm, you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to pull out every trick I can. And for Dan, he's like, 
in his mind, he's fighting to further his career. He's fighting for his job. Do you know what I mean? He's fighting for like, well, if I, you know, if I win this match, then like, like obviously I'll hopefully get on and work for Congress more and this and that. So looking at it like that, it's it's almost structured to that point where you've got two people who who are fighting for very different things, but they're not willing to back down. Mm. And that, by that token, in the second match, you almost have that second encounter with Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi, where he's like, nope, I'm the master now. Mm. Whereas (laughs) I'm not necessarily fighting to make sure that a student doesn't get one over on me. I'm fighting to still, like I'm fighting to prove that I'm still the man here. Whereas Danny Jones is trying to fight to prove that it's his time now and he's the man. So there's like this subtle things where like he'll out wrestle me. And instead of me getting up and trying to snatch something, I'll just let him have it and I'll almost back out and I'll be like, Oh, okay. Mm. Uh, and it's those moments that they make, they make you think that Dan might have it, but then in in turn this like there's some moments that came uh, almost accidentally and naturally uh, through. Uh, so the day before uh, I was wrestling Ligero in a wild brawl of a I quit match. Uh, and I actually managed to break my two fingers. Um, if you look, at it, it's not actually my middle one specifically is not actually reset correctly. So, but um, so I taped them up, and I I throw a lot of chops. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't think everybody's a massive fan of me chopping them, but I could bump them like a lot more. So do you know what? I'm saving you in the long run, guys. But there were natural things that came from that. So, like, I'm quite clearly right-handed. So, like, I'll throw a chop and I'll go, nope, that ain't no good. Um, so then I start switching to throwing with my left hand or I switch to throwing forearms and things like that. And it just isn't working. So, like, I just give up and I'm like, do you know what? I'll untape my fingers, see if I can get some movement back into them. I start, so I start chopping again, I start chopping again, and I just grip my teeth and I chop through it. And I know it's causing me pain, but I, in my mind, I know that I am infinitely more powerful with my right hand and infinitely stronger with my right hand. My left hand, I'm throwing wafty left-handed chops, they're no good. Like, so I've just got to suck it up and chop with a broken pair of fingers. <laughs> I just carry on and I drop down after I do it and I just sort of tie, I tie my fingers back up because I'm like, okay, that's hopefully that'll be enough. And it, it was just such a natural thing. Like it wasn't, it wasn't something we discussed or anything like that. It was just one of those things that we thought, you know, like I, in that moment I thought, you know what? 
like I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do it. And you can see, you can see people sort of wincing every time I start to chop him, and then they sort of start to clock that, like my hat, like my fingers have reopened and they're starting to bleed again. And you see people clock it, and they're like, "Oh God, you know, he's, he's not just taping his fingers up for the sake of taping his fingers up. He, you know, it's like he, he really hurt." So. And I think it just added something to it. It just added that little element of realism to it. That because um, everybody's hurt their finger. What um, with this brings me to a point actually, which is obviously chops is quite a theme in the um, Noah match that you recommended. Uh, yes, the chops play quite a big role in both the Danny, both the matches with Danny Jones, but particularly the first one. In just in general, when you're putting matches together. What what was the kind of purpose of spots where you have open open hand slaps, chops, and things like that? Because I so, in particular with the first match with Danny Jones, you do the high spot like soup the suplex over the top rope where you both go to the outside. Yeah. that's an automatic kind of break in in the in the match, and it feeds into the to, to another section of the match. And as you roll in, it was, a, it was a definitely a break. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> well, literal and uh, yeah. <laughs> storytelling as well. And um, but when you actually eventually roll back in, and then you both make it to your knees, that's when I think there's a sort of extended forearm strike battle that takes place. So I wonder what what, what do you see the role of chops and strikes and stuff like that in matches? Well, this is it, it comes a point in matches where. If you look at if you look at that five minute long Sasaki and Kabashi chop battle, they the, the beauty of chops is people can again you can't see through them they they know uh, they know that they hurt theoretically if you do them wrong, um, but. It, they get it's a nice loud noise, so people are going to get into that sort of thing. Like with a big forearm, it's going to get a dull, wet thud, things like that. So, for me, in uh, in those sort of like in those sorts of matches, um, specifically the Sasaki and Kabashi match, Kabashi was just a master of chops. That was that was the thing that like. You look at him. You look at uh, you look at the four pillars of uh, all Japan, and they all sort of had a, a strike that they like would favour. So like Kawada would be all of the kicks, and Misawa would do the big elbow smashes and forearms. But Kabashi would always be the chops. Um, but you look at that in that match, and that is just. <sighs> that's where it becomes a dick raving contest. That's that, like, that's neither of them wanting to back down from the other. I mean, it's their pride won't, won't let them back down in, in that. So, and I think, um, I think that's a, uh, an emotion that people underplay or in, in Western wrestling anyway, uh, pride because, you in that situation you you don't want to back down do you know what I mean like it, it'll hurt your ego it'll hurt your ego more than it will hurt you physically 
by backing down at that sort of point. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting because actually it helped me like watching that match and then and then comparing the Kobashi Sasaki match to your match with Danny Jones as it kind of helped me to think differently about chops, I think, which is always yeah. kind of a move that I've always been like, huh, like, why is that there? Like, surely if you really hate someone, you just punch them in the face. But like, actually, there's that it, it's about like it's about a kind of uh, the prowess, isn't it? It's about like it's about pride. It's about like I'm not hmm. stepping down. You keep going. You keep hitting me. You keep hitting me. I'm going to stand up. And so it becomes like uh it, it becomes more of a kind of mental battle, I guess, of like who is going to be the man, like the top dog in yeah. here. And so there's something more going on there than just the move. I, I started to read more deeply, I guess, into the sign that, that the rest yeah. is presenting. It's very symbolic. So, yeah. yeah um, for me, uh, the, actual, the actual point of chops is it's much like a body shot in boxing. You're trying to, you're trying to basically force air out of your opponent's lungs. You're trying to sap energy from them, um, so that like that's that's the whole point of chops physically. But when you get into that sort of, you get into that po- like that moment where in a match where neither man wants to back down. Do you know what I mean? And you you sort of it's almost like the Monty Python sketch, and it's just but a scratch. Um, <laughs> but your your pride and your ego will not let you back down even though you know it is sapping so much energy from the other wrestler like or from yourself to allow you like because humans not like not even wrestling humans we our pride and our ego is such a big part of us and People don't like people refuse to believe that. Obviously, I'm I'm not very egotistical. I I don't say, but if you are an athlete, an actor, uh, if you're in a position of importance, your ego and your pride will take over. You mean, oh, like it's like I know I can coax uh, Danny Jones. I like I know I can like. My, my cardio is probably a little bit better than this student's so I can coax Danny Jones into into this prolonged chop battle or forearm trade-off because I know I know my chin's a bit harder than his so I can almost coax him into it by just affecting his pride and the, mo- and the moment he chops me and I drop the strap you know what I mean like I drop the straps it's it's less about um, it's less about being a physical contest. More me sort of almost trying to draw him into making a mistake, or me knowing I can take this punishment. I can take this, but I know he will wear himself out, and I will be able to knock seven shades out of him. It, you know I mean? But like ego and pride are such a huge thing in wrestling and nobody nobody considers considers that they consider it when it comes to uh angles and uh uh g's for matches and things like that nobody ever considers pride and ego when they're actually wrestling nobody ever sort of looks at it and goes 
well, his pride isn't going to let him back down. His ego isn't going to let him back down. And I think for a lot of people, it, if they looked at things like that, it would just explain us so much more. And so there's a, one other element of these this series of matches that I want to finish talking about, uh, which is the, the pile driver. Um, so yes. In, in the first one, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think... You, do you you part you hit a standard pile driver on Danny? Yes. Out, you hit Danny hits one on you. You kick out. Yep. And then you hit the gotch version from the second rope. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, again, it was one of those things that uh, Dan started doing a pile driver because I do a pile driver and years and years ago, she said, "Why why don't you do a pile driver?" So that's one of the reasons why Dan does a pile driver. And so it's it's a very it's it's almost like that thing of uh, he, he does the big sort of explode and fly in because uh, he learned under Akiyama. He he does the pile driver because he learned under me. Do you know what I mean? It, like it's it, it's one of those things that uh, th- there's a school of thought for coaching and coaches that they uh, they go oh, don't do my stuff don't do my stuff. But like uh, you almost kind of want, you almost kind of allow people, should allow people to take things. Like Chris Hero learned under Misawa whilst he was uh, taught in Japan. That's why he does the rolling elbow, things like that. So like it's almost techniques that you've taken from your coach, your trainer, you, you know, someone you've learned under. And it, it sort of, again, tells a story that, Oh well, he taught you to do the pile driver, and that's how, that's a big thing. Um, I am guilty frequently of uh, giving up a pile driver as a finish. <laughs> I'm being too mean and allowing people to kick out of it, but I, I, do you know what? I don't care. Dan, Dan can have that. <laughs> that like that match, him kicking out of that pile driver, that made him. He like it. It almost it almost took overkill to kill him. Do you know what I mean it? Like nobody sees a second rope pile driver very frequently. Yeah. And when they do, and when they do, it's not only me doing it. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. um, I think I, but I love is like um, when the story of a match can be told just in a, in a series of a couple of moves. Like the whole story of the match, which was built around the student relationship, could be distilled down to him kicking out of that pile driver and then you going to the second rope and giving him the second one. It's that kind yeah. of, you, you, you're, oh, you're ready. You, bloody hell, you're good. Kicked out of the first one. Yeah. But you're not quite there yet, mate. Here's the second one off the, t- off, off the rope. Yeah. That, that, was, that was one of the things that... Um, I figured, like, he, he was, like, regardless of how he put that match together, in my mind, he was always going to be pick, kicking out of it. Like, I was going to go, yep, you can take this and you can kick out of it. And him doing his pile driver, I'd seen him do it. And I can't remember where I'd seen him do it. But he does this beautiful bridge back through. And for a lad as tall as he is it's so impressive 
that he can get like all six or five and bridge back through to his feet. So I wanted that in there. And then it became, in my mind, when he suggested he do it into the pile driver, it almost became, in my mind, okay, we've almost got one apiece here. And it's the next big thing is going to be the thing. Do you mean like after, do you mean like he's taken this thing and kicked out? I've taken that thing and kicked out. The next big thing, do you mean whoever gets it? Like if it had just been, I'd hit him with it and he kicks out, Mm. then the next thing I hit him with could be the finish. But at that point, it then became Mike is in danger as well. Not just Dan, like Dan is putting a performance, but Mike is also in danger. Do you know what I mean? Like it's changed, it changed it from just being not inherently lopsided, but uh, more Dan being in danger to everybody. There's just a real danger that this match will end like that. And I think that was the. That was the beauty of it, and then it having to me having to murder him from the second rope would <laughs> be in the big finish, and it just helps solidify him in my mind. And um, so, sticking with the power driver into the second match, probably the just the big moment of that match is you hit well one of the big moments of that match, you hit a power driver off the ring apron to the outside was. Firstly, was that because Eddie on commentary calls that as you missed the edge of the ring? So I wasn't sure whether that outside. Well, <laughs> see, this this is the thing. I was aiming for the uh, for the apron. <laughs> it, right, it, that in itself is such a subtle callback. Not even to the match with Danny Jones. That's. I beat Dave Mercy in the finals of the King of Chaos tournament by pile driving him on the apron. I roll back in, he rolls back in at nine, and I hit him with a pile driver, and that's how I beat Dave Mercy. All right. So it was almost a callback to another match for the. So this is well, it's probably worth mentioning that in the context of this, this is Chaos's last show under that management team. Yes. Dave is one yes. of the co-owners, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. So uh, it, it just felt like a nice... It, structurally, it felt like a nice nod to almost go, well, if you look at me and Danny Jones as wrestling each other from here to here there's obviously a correlation and they rhyme, but um, uh, if you look at my complete body of work, my uh, first time becoming a champion there was won by this. And now in almost a last ditch effort to keep my championship I'm going back to this again and it, it just rhymes like perfectly in my mind well it would have done if I'd have hit the apron 
but yeah so that that apron was dan's not dan's not a small lad he's a big lump and i'm like christ i'm 15 odd stone like you're like relatively wide so i i hooked him and i thought we've got to make this snappy we've got to go so up we went and where basically i pulled him up and almost my shoulders came back it started pushing us off the apron so we went and when i say we went we went and that knackered me for about a week my coccyx was absolutely knackered i couldn't sit down properly for about a week but uh yeah it but it it just added this drama that people are used to seeing things happen on the ring apron now, do you know what I mean? Yeah. People, people are very, they become desensitized to moves happening on the hardest part of the ring. Well, you're doing something incredibly dangerous and be it through accident alone, but you are, you're taking something that people have expecting and they have ex- these expectations of what's going to happen. And then something entirely different happens. And yeah, because the the other thing was the the reaction that it gets is is big, but it's not that yeah. explosive reaction. It's more the oh god, are they a little bit of the oh god, are they okay reaction first? Yeah, and then when once you roll, I think you roll roll him back in, or he comes back in, you hit the second one. Yeah, then when he kicks out, that's the that's the crescendo, the explosion, isn't it? And the, the pop- well, that- well, that's it. I, I think because obviously people are people. People are a lot smarter than wrestlers tend to give them credit for. Um, in some regards, so the, obviously, like there's an incredible loyal, fan, incredibly loyal fan base from uh, Chaos. They, a lot of people were there that night that I beat Dave. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they'll remember that that finish, or they'll they'll see it, and they won't know where they know it from, but they know that this should be the. You know what I mean? Like, it shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be that he almost gets murdered, then comes back in, and as soon as I catch him with that next thing, they know that's the finish. But oh wait, it's not. Mm. You've almost preconditioned them to think, well, that's that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to be the thing. Oh God, no, it's not. And that's how you get, that's how you get people. Yeah. I think this idea of rhyming, I'm really taken with this idea today. Like, cause in lots of ways, it feels like a kind of wrestling version of like a kind of intertextuality. Like I, I can, I can enjoy the match just as it is, but I get even more enjoyment from it. If I understand the rhymes, if I understand, like if I, if I watch that match and then understand your rhyming back with, like Bret Hart, one, two, three kid. Like I, I'm, there's, there's a kind of a greater sense of appreciation and joy in that when I, when I really understand the kind of rhyming nature of pro wrestling history and the kind of genealogy of, of, of wrestling. For me, that's what kind of part of its joy as a fan, I think. It's, it's something I got from George Lucas. He said that if you look at his films, they don't mirror each other, but they do rhyme. So things as subtle as if you look at, Episode three, you've got Anakin and Obi-Wan Kenobi are going at it on this big volcanic planet. 
and it's all kicking off and it's exploding and it, it all ends but then you look at something like uh rise of skywalker which isn't a george lucas film but obviously it's the same series of films you have ray and kylo ren who are having this big dramatic fight but they're on this planet covered in water and there's water going everywhere. So, and it's not, it's not the same thing. It doesn't mirror, but it does rhyme with what's come before it. You know? um, but with professional wrestling, you should, you should always look to improve on the things you've done in the past, not just continue to do the same things that you've done in the past. And because if you if you don't learn from your mistakes not just as a performer but as the athlete you are portraying if you don't learn from your mistakes if you keep getting caught with the same thing there's no growth but you've got to allow your your audience to watch your development over five ten fifteen twenty like however long you that you work for there's there should be a lifelong development for you because you are learning theoretically as the athlete you portray you are learning something from every match you wrestle mm. so things shouldn't mirror each other because you should have learned from previous experience or previous mistakes that um it's really interesting and it's also a great segue into just the final part and we might as well keep going because we're approaching uh, around two hours so <laughs> well, we'll, we'll go for another fifth or ten ten fifteen minutes maybe yeah. on this last part and you can't, you, you can't blame me you can't blame me sam you asked <laughs> you asked me you can't blame any wrestler. You ask a wrestler to talk about themselves and... <laughs> and Episode two, it'll be, now you're only allowed one match each. <laughs> Mike ruined it for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is why I'm the guinea pig, so yes. <laughs> yeah, so I want to... Obviously, you're known as a, as a great wrestler and still an active wrestler, but you also have a, a real reputation in the wrestling community as a teacher. And I wanted to finish by just discussing a little bit about that aspect of your professional practice. Um, obviously, you're a former head trainer at Dragon Pro Wrestling in Wales. Yes. Now with your own school, Catch-22, in Gravesend. Um, yes. So I wanted just to talk a little bit about your approach to teaching and also the, the, the dynamic between being in a training school and learning while wrestling. Because it always strikes me that particularly on the, 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 the circuit that we work on, matches are as much about the performers learning as they are like performances. So just a, that is a kind of starting point, I guess. Well, you can't, you can't ever beat on the job, uh, on the job training. It's, and that, that's why I would recommend any professional, professional wrestler working on the camps and working uh working for uh family style shows i was uh, lucky enough to work for uh, alan ravenhill uh with welsh wrestling and 
it, you, it completely gets you. I was a very different wrestler then, but it gets you used to being in front of people. It gets you used to, because it's all about getting a reaction from them. And uh, I, I think that anybody, anybody would be lucky to be working these things and like they, they really help you. Because um, obviously a big part of what we do, it's about crowd interaction and how you can make them make noise. So it's it's very much, uh, it's very much uh, finding your feet in that regard to being in front of a crowd. Whereas, um, coaching and training, the biggest the biggest thing I try to teach people, not just techniques, because obviously in, in my mind, if you should be able to do the things that you are portraying that you can do. So you should know how to hold the headlock correctly. You should know which way to link your hands for a face bar and or a cross face and, and thing and you know like real wrestling things. But the the biggest the biggest part of teaching is why. Because if you as a performer can't answer the question why, then you probably shouldn't be doing the thing that you're doing. Mm. Take take for instance The international, a simple wrestling sequence that everybody everybody knows how to do. Theoretic, hopefully everybody knows how to do. Why? Why? Why do we do a drop down? Why do you do a leap? Why do you do, why do you do why do you do the things you do? And people won't necessarily be able to answer you why do you do that so you almost have to you don't have to try and convince wrestling fans and that's it's a, a big part of uh, the mentality that i try and teach people is that you don't have to try and convince wrestling fans because they've they've bought tickets i mean they they're preconditioned to seeing this or that or whatever and you ask them well why did you do that and they go oh because because it's what wrestlers do you should be wrestling to try and convince a six-year-old because kids are the most cynical people (laughs) you will ever meet and, and they don't care. But if, if you do something, a six-year-old will go, why do you do that? <laughs> you, have to, you have to be able to back up that credibility to six-year-olds. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, why didn't he do this? If you can't, if, you can't, if a six-year-old is stumping you with that question, then you're doing something wrong. You know what I mean? So... You all, you have to try and apply that logic of why am I doing this? Why is someone doing that? Why are we? Um, excuse me. Why? Uh, why would I not do this? Why? Would, you know what I mean like? So that's 
that's a really, really big thing that, like about teaching. It's it's just asking, like being able to answer the question why. It's like the internal logic, isn't it? Like, and again, like into comparing it to kind of a um, kind of a theatrical theatrical tropes, like the 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 moment where things like, for example, cinema falls down or or a novel falls down or theatre falls down is the moment where like the in, its internal logic becomes like you, you don't you don't buy it basically like you can you can yeah. you can stay you can very very easily stage a you know a, a play on the moon and it's fine but if something happens that like persuades you it's not it's it, it doesn't fit in with that internal logic that's the moment where yeah. you're like i oh, do you know what i'm done with this mm. and i think the same is true for wrestling that actually like you can you as a wrestler can convince me of a whole heap of things like you can convince me that like you know you really hate someone else you convince me that like they might get the upper hand whatever it might be but that actually that match has to have an internal logic to it where exactly the thing you're saying like you need to be able to answer the why question so that i can answer the why question um, yeah. and that's really it's really important to have that logic i think well that, that's it i think so that's that's a big thing because if you can't answer the question why then why are you doing it do you know what i mean and i think and I think a lot of people tend to fall down that trap of, oh, because wrestling. And then I go, nope, that don't work for me. Tough tits, don't do it. So it, it, it's, it's, one of, like, it's, it's one of the most fundamental things that I think people miss out on. That and, that and just wrestling basics. Do you know what I mean? Like it's people, um, because we're in, a, we're in an age where, Wrestling can pretty much be anything, do you know what I mean? But always in my mindset, do you know what I mean? Like, you go back to sports, like, you can have all sorts of different types of rugby. But if you don't know how to pass a ball, (laughs) or you, you know what I mean? Like, I was never a great kicker. I played in the forwards, do you know what I mean? I was all about hitting things and tackling them, you know what I mean? But, you know the fundamentals of the physicality of playing rugby, and I think I think that's where some people fall down. It's like, so I always I always try and instill to people that they should know how to really do this, and again, they should also know why they are or are not doing things. And it's it's always like it's always a real fun moment when you explain something to someone and they go. Oh, I get it now. Do you mean? Because that's, in some ways, it, it's almost as good as getting a gigantic pop. Do you mean? Because it, you've, you've seen somebody go from not understanding and just it, like it being a completely foreign idea to them to go in, well, if you do this like this, then this will happen because of this. And people go, oh, and getting to, obviously, because I try and make sure that I get to see a lot of uh, the lads wrestle, whether it be for me or elsewhere. Uh, It's seeing them do stuff and them coming back and going, Oh, that worked great. And I was like, yeah, that, that thing, you suggest something and they come back and they go, oh, that worked exactly how you said it worked. And I go, yeah, this is why. <laughs> that like, it's, as much as, as much as you, 
you kind of want uh, people to follow, like follow your advice. It's so much more satisfying seeing them come to that, those conclusions on their own. Do you know I mean like they can, you know, they, they've taken, they'll take principles that they've been taught or been shown and they'll work it into something in their own way. And they go, Oh, that worked so well. And that like, that's almost as big a thrill as like wrestling yourself. Do you know I mean, you almost sort of wrestle vicariously through people you're teaching, which is great. Um, right, I've got one more question to wrap up. Um, yes, sir. Which is on a slight continuation of that, which is more um, like, obviously you've been wrestling with us at Resurgence and some of the other companies recently where you're wrestling with sort of less experienced wrestlers. So how, how much of that is a, do you feel like an obligation to be a teacher in that environment? Like when you're actually on a show with someone who's less experienced than yourself? Oh, that's, that's that's my job like that like that anybody that's in a position where they've been doing it a long time and have got to a certain level you shouldn't just you shouldn't just wrestle the mat like your your match you should try and explain to people why you were doing things and why you're doing that then and when to do this and when to do that that's that's you that's that's such a big part of your job as a wrestler to secure the future of wrestling. Do you mean? Mm. There's, there's a, a very famous story about uh, the triangle of Sting, Lex Luger and Flair. Now Flair would have great matches with Sting and Flair would have great matches with Luger, but Sting and Luger wouldn't have great matches. But that was because Flair was calling the match. Flair was calling the match but he wasn't telling them why or where like he would know how to do it but not necessarily how to explain it to mm. to people so obviously sting and lose matches would then go on to become great but they did not patch on the flair and like sting or flair and luger matches so i've always i've always seen it as my obligation to try and help people and try and impart some of my philosophy and the things that I've, I've been taught over the years and the things I've acquired over the years, because you never know something in, until you're told it. Like, even if somebody asks you a question, you know what I mean? Like, they might not necessarily be asking the right questions. So mm. when, whenever I'm working with a newer talent, I'll always sit down and try and, uh, try and do a little bit of research and maybe talk to them a week or so before I know it, like, if I can. Watch some of their stuff, see what they're good at, see what, and see what's the best possible way I can highlight them. Mm. and then explain to them this is why we're doing this this is why we're doing that this is why i'm doing that this is why i would like you to try and do this this is yeah, this is why i want you to sell like this at this point because of this you know, like it, it's 
it's it's my it's my way of looking after my future because I fully intend on wrestling until they stick me in a box. So I'd much rather I I'd very much rather in 10, 15, 20 years time have people that go, Oh man, Mike Mike was really good. Mike helped me with this, Mike helped me with that. Do you know what? I'm gonna look after Mike now. I'm gonna look after Mike tonight. So but it's almost my way of uh, <laughs> my insurance policy for looking after myself in the future. But I I, I see it as a like if if I'm hoarding all this knowledge, then of what use is it? I mean, like it, it's of use to me. Whereas if I help someone I'm wrestling to, like Christ, I'll still I'll still speak to like guys I used to train who like who are signed. You know what I mean like? I, you know, I messaged Hitch a couple of weeks back and was like, what if you guys did this thing like this? I mean, because it's, I, I don't think this information should be exclusively for me or, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's for the betterment of all wrestling. If I go out there and wrestle someone and I help make them a better wrestler, then that's another good wrestler. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's another person that people will want to see. And if there's more people that people want to see, that's more people going to shows. That's more money for everybody. So, like, it's it's just, it's just my philosophy on trying to make, make my workplace the best possible workplace it can be, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, so that brings us neatly to to the two hour mark. <laughs> Again, it's your, it's your it's your fault, not mine. I'm I'm innocent. It's all very very interesting stuff. Um, yeah, that's great. For sharing. Um, have you, Claire? Have you got any last questions or thoughts that you want to add? Um, I'm just. I suppose it's just that what you're talking about the teaching side of it. I I'm really fascinated with this because. Um, again, like just sort of synergy is my own kind of practice, like the, the act of, of teaching kind of physical theatre work. Um, there are different, there are profound differences between teaching in a wrestling space and teaching in an acting studio space, I think. But actually some of them are similar, like the, the feeling of like you were talking about, like it's kind of one of the biggest pops when you when you teach someone and they actually get something. Like I totally empathize yeah. with that because like I've had moments in my own sort of teaching like, pedagogical experience where I'm like, oh, yeah, like just just knowing that they've got something that they didn't get before is like a real a real joy and it's like it's like hard work it's like hard it's like labor it's hard labor like yeah. hard physical labor to enable someone to learn something whether that be intellectually or physically or indeed a bit of both like it's, yeah. it's tough going so mm. I'm, I'm really intrigued as to as to how the training process is between kind of performance practices sport and wrestling kind of exist kind of an interesting interesting triangle where there are differences but actually there are quite a lot of kind of interesting um um yeah interesting rhymes to use your kind of the word you keep coming back to so, yeah yeah i, I think the, the, there are marked differences between everything but then there's always going to be something that ties it back in yeah and it's 
it, it's such a weird and beautiful thing that uh, yeah. it is it's many, many varied. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Awesome. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, again, thanks for thanks for joining us, Mike. Um, and thank you, Claire, as well. Yeah, no problem, Tom. This has been great. Thanks, Mike. Well, thank you for having me, guys. Thank you for joining us on the first episode of the Grappling Arts Podcast. Thanks again to our guest, Mike Bird. Obviously, this was quite a long interview. Originally, we'd anticipated it being an hour. How wrong we were. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you did, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. We're putting together a list of potential future guests and hope to bring you more episodes very soon. Just one final plug. If you want to see Mike live once the coronavirus subsides, you can check him out on Twitter where he is at FlyingMikeBird. You can search him on Facebook and Instagram. For Mike's training school, it is Catch22 in Kent and you can find them on Twitter by searching the handle at Catch22Pro and no doubt also on Facebook and Instagram. For Wrestling Resurgence news, tickets, free matches and video on demand, we are at Wrestling Resurgence and we are on Twitter, Instagram and you can also search for us on Facebook and YouTube. I've been your host Sam West and until next time, stay safe.